How great the Father's love for us. Thank you, Father, and thank you for that song and Michael. And thank you for this opportunity to speak about you. God, I pray that you would help us to preach. Preaching through the Revelation, and the Revelation is an incredible picture of your love for us. And some people haven't been here for all the sermons. I pray that you would help us to connect the dots. And for those, Lord, that are having trouble connecting the dots, I pray that you would help them to know that Jesus is the one that connects the dots, and he'll connect all the dots, so they don't have to worry about connecting the dots. I pray they'd just, like, look at the dots, and your spirit would connect them. Thank you, Lord God, that the picture that uh, you are painting is revealed in Jesus. And so, Lord, we trust you, and we ask you to reveal yourself to us in his name. Amen. Last week I began the sermon uh, with a, a story talking about two Tibetan boys that did not know Russian, German, or English that decided to go for a walk in 1941. They walked over the mountains and were conscripted by Joseph Stalin and the Soviet army. And then they were captured by Adolf Hitler and the German army. Finally, uh, after being uh, conscripted in his service in the German army, they were captured by the Americans who couldn't figure out who they were and called in a language expert who listened to their story. And when they were done listening to the story, they asked the two boys, do you have any questions? And the two boys said, just one, why were all those people trying to kill each other? <laughs> I love that story because I think that story is about me. I think it's kind of about us. And maybe you've been asking that question. Why are all these people trying to kill each other? You know, I've lost track of all this. There have been at least uh, 10 so far this year. Uh, eight dead at Santa Fe High School in Texas. 17 dead at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in Florida. That's just the school shootings, let alone the church shootings, like the 26 that died at the Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs six months ago. Recently at staff, we asked the question, should we have some sort of active shooter protocol for the sanctuary? Fortunately, we're a, we're a small church, so listen, all you potential shooters, I think a better target might be down the street, you know, like at the Catholic church or something. But still, the question is a bit disturbing, as may well be my, my response. For me, it all began down the street at Columbine High School on Hitler's birthday, 1999, when Eric Harris and Dylan Claybold murdered 13 people and then murdered themselves. And you know, far more kids die from shooting themselves and getting shot at school. One of my friends and parishioners, Rich Long, was a teacher at the time at, at uh, Columbine. He's the one that drug Dave Sanders down the hallway after he'd been shot through, through the head. And, and I remember Rich just telling me, Peter, I could feel it. It was like this tangible presence of, of evil. Later he told me another amazing story about the tangible presence of Jesus, but he felt the evil. Last week we began uh, speaking uh, about uh, the dragon. We spoke of how evil is like a, a nothing that becomes a terrible something. A nothing that becomes a terrible something. This is something to, to ponder, but maybe nothing really is nothing until we notice the nothing, name the nothing, and then become afraid of the nothing and turn it into a, into a terrible something. As Jesus told my wife and my friend, with fear you put flesh on the evil one. Perhaps that flesh is our own flesh. Well, anyway, it's not a bad question. Why are all these people trying to kill each other. And then the second question, what do we do about it? Last week, in answer to the first question, I showed a video. I hope the video doesn't seem irreverent because I think it may be the right answer to the question. But this is that video.
all terrified of the shadow, and in particular, our own shadow. A little child cannot make himself, and yet he can make a shadow by blocking the light. I think the lie of the devil is basically this. You are your shadow. In other words, you are the choices you've made and the deeds that you've done. In the garden, he tempted the woman to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, saying, dying you will not die, and you will be like God. It's a very subtle lie that I think we continue to hear every day, something like this. Something's wrong with you, so take knowledge of the good so you can choose the good and make yourself good in the image of God. Save yourself. Redeem yourself. Justify yourself. Create yourself. So we make our choices and do our deeds and then think that is who we are. If we compare ourselves to others at that point, it can make us feel proud for a time, and yet over time it will fill us with shame and then terror, for we realize that all we have made is nothing. Not good, but the absence of, of good. Not life, but the absence of life. Not I am, but I am not. Not light, but a shadow. And so the devil says, look, 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 you're nothing. You're nothing. You, you better make that nothing into something. Look, you're evil. You better take the good and make yourself good. Look, you're dead. You better take the life to make yourself alive. Jesus is the life, the life. And Jesus is the good in flesh hanging on a tree in a garden. So why are all these people trying to kill each other? Well, they're trying to take them, they're trying to take the life to make themselves alive. And why are all these people killing themselves? Well, I think they're getting psyched out. Psyched out. They look at their shadow and think, that's myself. I better destroy myself. But you see, that's only more self, more psyche, a deeper darkness. It's choosing to fight the shadow with more shadow. Sometimes we hide from our shadow in more shadow. Did you notice the last little boy in the video? He ran from his shadow and found he could hide from his shadow in more shadow. So if you're greedy, surround yourself with a whole lot of greed and then you won't feel so, so greedy. Do it long enough and your whole world will go black. People who run from the light hide themselves in Hades, often translated hell. Even now we exist in the land of the shadow of death. Uh, I don't think that means that death casts a shadow. I think that means that death is a shadow. Which would mean the death of death is what? The light! The, the second death. Well, anyway, that's something to think about. But, but I, I, I want you to get this. I think Jesus, John, and Paul refer to this shadow self as the false self or the false psyche. Psyche is a Greek word that gets translated as uh, soul, usually, but sometimes it's translated as life, which is really a bit confusing. You have a soul, a psyche, but Jesus is the life. The, the Zoe in, in Greek. Uh, according to the book of Hebrews, that life is indestructible. But your psyche can be lost and found. It can be destroyed, reduced to dust, and remade, redeemed. It's like your mental and emotional map with which you ascribe meaning to your experiences, your psyche. It's a Greek word that translates the Hebrew word nephesh. The nephesh is like the container for the life. In the beginning, God breathed into the dust, and Ha-Adam, the Adam, became a nephesh, a psyche, a living soul. So the psyche is something that God originally makes of dust, 
But at the fall, on the sixth day of creation, we took over construction of the psyche at the advice of the devil, and now the psyche we make is, is a false psyche, a false self. Paul refers to the false self as the old man or the old Adam, the false Adam. It's no longer than a container for life. Why? Well, because we took the life, consumed the life, and killed the life. It's no longer a container for life or a vessel of life, but death. No longer a vessel of truth, but lies. No longer a temple of light, but a house of darkness, a, a, a shadow. Jesus said, the ruler of this world is coming, and he has no place in me. St. Paul wrote, um, give no place to the devil. But you see, we have given place, an empty place to the devil, our psyche. That's how we put flesh on the evil one. We put our flesh on the dragon. You ever thought about your flesh? You go, well, of course, every time I'm hungry. <laughs> Well, well, I mean, really thought about, about your, your flesh because it's a bit terrifying. In one way, it's utterly amazing as if it's an, uh, an imprint of the very glory of God, and yet in another way, it's, it's utterly broken, depraved, and, and terrifying. In Scripture, you know, the problem with the flesh is not so much that it's physical, but that the flesh is entirely, well, almost entirely self-centered. It only feels its own pain. It only feels its, its own pleasure, except for in a few fascinating instances that we don't have time to talk about right now. And this is the real shocker. Your flesh literally grows by eating life and excreting death. And Jesus said, I am the life. Whew, think about that tonight as you're trying to go to sleep. And try not to get psyched out. So anyway, I was just saying, Satan tempts us to believe we are our own shadow. And then he gets us all anxious about our shadow. Then he tries to get us to fix our shadow by consuming the life, which only makes more death, more shadow, more dragon flesh, more psyche. He's trying to psych us out. When I used to play baseball, I'd get so worried about the game I, I couldn't play the game always like strike out sometimes I get so worried about my life I can't live my lucked out psyched out your father is light you cast a shadow the devil will tell you that you are your shadow but your father wants you to turn around and see yourself reflected in his eyes when my children were little they lived in the light of my eyes they believed they were good because I saw them as good. They didn't really know what the good was. They just enjoyed being themselves in my light, and that was just so, so very good. If you're a parent, you maybe remember that time. But in each of them, there came a day when they gained knowledge of the good, and they started trying to make themselves good. And ironically, it was like they covered up their goodness with badness. They covered it with self-consciousness and, and pride and fear and striving and, and shame. That was the day they started building one of these. Remember this picture? That was the day they started building an, an ego. One day, my daughter Elizabeth, must have been about six, one day I took her for her annual physical at the doctor's office, and this young doctor, I remember, sat her up on the examination table. <laughs> Elizabeth turned, and she was looking at me, smiling, her eyes just beaming, kicking her legs back and forth under the table. And, and this young lady doctor started the examination by asking her this question. Elizabeth, what do you like about yourself? Without skipping a beat, she turned, she looked at me, and she said, I like being with my daddy. And then, with a speed and intensity that betrayed a wound somewhere buried deep within this doctor, I remember she just said, Elizabeth said, I like being with my doctor, with my, with my dad. I like being, I like being, what do I like about me? I like being with my, my daddy. And the doctor said, no! And then she kind of caught herself and she said, I, I, I mean, what do, you, what do you like about 
yourself. And I remember Elizabeth looked at her like, I just told you. And, and the lady said, what I mean is, what do you like about yourself? That you can, that you can sing well or, or that you can run fast. Elizabeth said, well, um, I guess that I like that I can run fast. I remember looking at this doctor and I just wanted to scream, get behind me, Satan! Get behind me, Satan! How dare you tell my daughter that she is her decisions and her deeds? How dare you suggest that she like herself because she can beat her neighbor in a foot race? How dare you tell my daughter that she's her flesh? One day her legs will fail. One day her flesh will fail. One day her flesh will turn to dust and blow away. But love is eternal and she will always be my delight and my pleasure, my treasure. How dare you tell her that she is her shadow? I remember feeling so angry at the doctor and then I had to remember that she had also been a little girl. A little girl that may very well have been cursed and abused by her father. A little girl that did not know that God is her father. And God is good. Satan wants us to believe that we are the decisions that we have made and that we are the deeds that we have done. Our Father wants us to turn around and see that we are the decision He has made. And we are the deed that He has done. When we see and we believe that we are His beloved one, we will choose the good in freedom and we will do the deeds which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. We will do the will of God. We will love God and love our neighbor in freedom. Okay, that was my introduction. Now, the revelation, all right? Chapter 12, where we were, where we looked at last week, we meet the dragon, or we meet the woman giving birth to a, a baby. In a minute, we'll meet the dragon. We meet, meet the woman giving birth to a baby who is the will of God. That's what we talked about. The baby's the will of God or judgment of God. The woman is us, and the will of God in flesh is Jesus. Revelation 12, 4. The dragon stood before the woman, uh, the church, Mary, all those things we talked about. She stood before the woman, the mother of Jesus, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. The dragon wants to eat the baby, and the dragon tempts us to eat the baby. Uh, the dragon is evil. Next, in chapter 12, we meet Michael and his angels who go to war with the dragon and his angels. Michael means who is like God. Michael is the archangel in, in Jude 9, which means the chief of the angels, which sounds like the commander of the Lord's army, the angel of Yahweh. So several scholars have argued that Michael is a depiction of Jesus, and that would make some sense, for we learn that the whole revelation is like a picture of the conquest of Jericho, but like on steroids. And you remember that the commander of the Lord's army, the angel of Yahweh, plays a critical role in that drama. The commander of the Lord's army wasn't on the side of the Canaanites or on the side of the Israelites. Remember, the commander of the Lord's army was opposed to the wall that separated them. A few weeks ago, we talked of how the dragon tempts us to build walls around our souls in order to protect ourselves from other self-centered souls. Remember that picture? And we talked about how groups of self-centered souls will form covenants of self-interest to protect themselves from other groups of self-centered souls. We call those entities governments sometimes churches or economies, that is, politics, religion, and business. Well, the commander of the Lord's army hates all the walls, and especially he hated the walls of, of Jericho, for on one side of those walls was his super, super, super great Jewish grandfather, Salmon, and on the other side of the same wall was his super, super, super great Canaanite grandmother, Rahab. She's a super great-grandmother of Jesus, if you know the story. I've never known quite what to do with this, but Rahab means dragon. You see, I think she's a picture of us. She's been dragoned. She's like the bride of Christ trapped and acting like a harlot. 
She's been dragoned and she's about to be undragoned by who? The commander of the Lord's army. Well, anyway, the dragon tempts us to think that we are our shadow. And he tempts us to hide in that shadow, which becomes a prison, which also becomes a place for him. It's a place which Scripture often refers to as death and Hades, Hades which gets translated hell. What I'm saying is that your ego is an outpost of hell. Your ego is your shadow. And as long as you seek to save it, you trap yourself in death and hell. He who seeks to save his psyche will lose it. But he who loses it for my sake and the gospel will find it, said the commander of the Lord's army, our Lord Jesus, our husband. Verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, the oikumenen. Uh, it's like economy, the inhabited world of humanity, the oikumenen. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives, their psyches, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, the man-child, Ha'adam. But the woman was given to the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time, the time of trouble. The serpent poured water like a river out out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. The river is a river of lies, all based upon one lie, and that lie is that you are your own creator. It's a lie that holds sway over the akumenen, the world of men, but it's a lie that's swallowed by the creation, the earth which God created. I mean, sometimes, you, you know, I, I'm sure you have times like this, but sometimes when I get utterly terrified by the river of lies and the sight of my own shadow, I just get psyched out thinking, I can't justify myself. I can't save myself. I can't make myself into the person that I'm supposed to be. And then I go for a walk up in the mountains. And, and, and I begin to remember, hey, I'm not my own maker. Look at that flower. I'm not my own savior. I'm not my own creator. I can't justify me, but my creator has justified me. And then I'm free to be me, the true me, the real me. Well, the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and made off to, made off to make war against the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast, Therion, rising out of the sea. The word translated beast means ravenous, untamed animal. A, a beast, what is a beast like? Well, a beast just sees the good and takes the good. A beast sees the life and eats the life. Dragon is like a beast. It sees Jesus and waits to devour Jesus. It wants to eat the baby. You may remember in the Chronicles of, of Narnia, boy Eustace gets fascinated by this dragon. He, he thinks he's done battle with the dragon, but in fact he becomes a dragon, and before he knows it, and to his horror, he's already eaten half of this dead dragon. And then C.S. Lewis writes this, and there is nothing a dragon likes so well as fresh dragon meat. That is why you so seldom find more than one dragon in the same country. <laughs> what a great line. The beginning of the screw tape letters, he writes this, 
I feign that devils can, in a spiritual sense, eat one another and us. Even in human life, we have seen the passion to dominate, almost to digest one's fellow. On earth, this desire is often called love. In hell, I feign, and he's talking about writing his book, I feign that they recognize it as, as hunger. There, I suggest, the stronger spirit can really and irrevocably suck the weaker spirit into itself and perhaps gorge its own being on the weaker's outraged individuality. It is for this that Satan desires all his own followers and all the sons of Eve and all the hosts of heaven. His dream is of the day when all shall be inside him and all that says I can say it only through him. This, I surmise, is the only imitation he can understand of that unfathomed bounty whereby God turns tools into servants and servants into sons so that they may be at last reunited to him in perfect freedom of a love offered from the height of the utter individualities which he has liberated them to be. It's an amazing quote, but, but I hope you at least get this much, and that is, God does not desire to eat us. at least until we can hear him say first, eat me. I'm saying God is not a beast. He's a slaughtered lamb standing on the judgment seat, the throne of God. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Eustace cannot be undragoned. He can't undragon himself, for that's just more dragon. He rips off dragon skin and just gets more dragon skin. Eustace has to be undragoned by a lion that chooses to be a lamb. He is the word of God that cuts like a knife, separating to the division of soul and spirit. That's psyche and pneuma, the pneuma, the, the breath of God. Well, anyway, Revelation 12, the earth swallows the devil's lies. So now the devil is calling up the beasts to help him lie. They are the principalities and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness, this, this shadow. They are politics and religion. And soon we'll meet the harlot and economy of consumption. They are all antichrists. Antichrist means imitation Christ, and who hasn't looked to government or religion or business to save them, right? Or at least help them save themselves with some knowledge of what's good and evil. Verse thir or chapter 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his, po his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have, been, to have had a, a mortal wound. We'll talk about this more next week. But, it, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who's like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name, and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Get that? It was allowed. By, by who? I guess by, I guess by God. It was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Let me pause and just point out what we just read. All who dwell on earth will worship it. Verse 16, we'll read that another beast causes all to worship and be marked with the mark of the beast. In 14.9, next chapter, we discover that all these worship of the beast, who are all who dwell on the earth, will have no rest and be tormented by fire and theon, the presence of the Lord. 
In chapter 19, the commander of God's army, the word of God, king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus, comes with a sword issuing from his, his mouth and a robe that's been drenched in blood for he just trampled the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. In verse 18, an angel calls to the bird saying, come eat the flesh of all men. All! Not just those around after some weird little rapture thing or whatever, but all, all, all men. Not some, all. All must have their flesh cut away and then be consumed by fire. You, you see, your flesh, your, your psyche, your um, old man is a far bigger problem than you ever dreamed. And your sin is far more heinous than you ever imagined. And this is my problem with most liberals. They don't think we really need a savior. For most of us don't really need to be saved. And this is my problem with most conservatives. They think they can save themselves with a policy or a program or a little bit of willpower. They think they are the savior and capable of saving themselves and they aren't even aware that this idea is the very definition of sin. True. Solomon wrote this. You know this verse. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, ha-adam, that God is testing them. Not to see if some are beasts and others are not beasts. He writes, God is testing them that they may see that they are but beasts. Your problem is that you're a butt beast. And you can't fix you with more you. The problem is you. Duh. Your sin is greater than you ever Imagined, but God's grace is more glorious than you could possibly even conceive. And listen to what John writes. All will worship the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. Okay, so, so wow. So, so whose name has Jesus written in his book? John 3, 35, Jesus says this. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. So are you a thing? It's a good thing to ask yourself. Are you a thing? A shadow is not a thing. But I think you're a thing. John 6, 37, Jesus says this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And he who comes to me, I will never cast out. <laughs> wow! That's cool. All are given to the Son and predestined for eternal life. So, okay, so, so then, so then, where are most people now? Well, they're enslaved in their old bodies of sin, their flesh, their pride, shame, and fear. They're, they're psyches. They've been psyched out. They're hanging on to their life, and so they can no longer live life. They're dead in their trespasses and sins, and listen to this, the uncircumcision of their flesh. They are the dead whether walking on the surface of the earth or hiding from God in graves under the earth. Revelation 20, we'll read this. The dead stand before the throne and they are judged by the deeds that they've done, written in the, the books of deeds. The world is full of books of deeds. But the living have already been judged for their names have been written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of... So listen closely. The dead think they are the choices that they have made and the deeds that they have done. The living know that they are the choice God has made and the deed that he has done. You know, there is no way that I can understand the Bible, Jesus, John, or Paul except to believe what they clearly say. And that is that I have an old man an old psyche, a self that must be surrendered and destroyed, a, a man of dust that must return to the dust. And I have a new man or psyche or self that is being born out of this old sack of dust that I thought was, was me. That man is the heavenly man. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so shall we bear the image of the man of heaven, writes Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. 
Well, anyway, Revelation 13, 8, John continues, All who dwell on earth will worship the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, or more literally translated, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he, must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Understand, this one looks like Jesus and talks like the dragon. Have you ever been listening to a sermon when you realize that the preacher really isn't preaching God is salvation, which in a word is Jesus, Yahashua. But instead, he or she is preaching the government is salvation, or our religion is salvation. You and your giving are salvation. We well, see this beast is like that preacher. Beware when fighting the dragon, lest you become the dragon. Verse 11, I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed, allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who, who, who would not worship the image of, of the beast uh, to be slain. Also, it, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man or a human number, and his number is 666. It's a human number. It would imply that the other numbers are not simply human numbers and can't just be calculated the way we do our calculations with a watch and a calendar. But this number we're invited to calculate, and it was common in that day to do that. There's a wall that you can still read in Pompeii covered by graffiti, graffiti from 79 AD. One of the graffiti reads like, reads like this. I love her whose number is 545. You see, it was a practice in that day to assign a number to every alphabet in, a, in to every letter in an alphabet, then add up the letter, number of the letter in the name and come up with a person's, a person's number. 666 is, is the number of the beast. Some ancient manuscripts of the Revelation recorded as 616. Emperor Nero's name is spelled two ways in Hebrew. One way adds up to 666, and the other way adds up to 616. So he's a pretty good candidate. That and a slew of other things that hopefully we can talk about next week point to, to Nero. In chapter 17, an angel tells John that the seven heads are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and one is yet to come. That means that the beast, listen closely, is alive and kicking at the time of the revelation. However, not just at the time of the revelation. The beast clearly refers to the kingdom of Babylon, the empire of Babylon, and the empire of Persia, and the empire of Greece, as well as Rome. That's the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the head with ten horns that rises out of the sea in Daniel chapter 7, written 500 years before the revelation. My point is that the beast is political power that manifests in different forms at different times different ages. The second beast that preaches the first beast is religious power. It looks like a lamb, but if you listen, you realize it's talking like a beast. The beasts don't just attack the people of God outright, the way Emperor Nero persecuted the early church using the Jewish religion and pagan religion to do it. The, the beasts don't just attack, they tempt. They tempt you to worship. They teach you that politics is salvation. 
and religion is salvation. And the harlot will teach you that business is salvation. While Scripture declares over and over and over again, God alone is salvation. So I find it utterly, horrifically, and tragically ironic that some will use the revelation to scare people and then ask those people, how do we conquer the beast? And then suggest to those people that they must support some earthly government like the nation-state of Israel or join their religious program or group. You cannot conquer the beast with politics or religion. The beast is politics and religion. Both beasts will tell you that you are the choices you make and the deeds that you do. So if you take their knowledge of the good, it will help you make those choices and do those deeds. It will help you conquer the dragon and his beast, but they are the beasts under the control of the dragon. The beasts will always appeal to your ego. Even if they ask you to sacrifice your ego, you will do it to make yourself good, which is your ego. The lamb will not appeal to your ego. I think he already sacrificed your ego on a tree in a garden at the foundation of the world. The lamb is the word of your father. He's the decision of your father, the way that the father makes you in his own image. When you see him, you will know you are not the choices you have made, but the choice that God has made. You are not the deeds that you do, but the deed that God has done. The Lamb is the light, and when He sits on the throne in the temple of your soul, you will no longer cast a shadow. You will be undragoned. You will be what you truly and eternally are, the image of God your Father. So anyway, all these people are, are killing each other because they believed the dragon. So how do we conquer the dragon? I can reduce it to theological and philosophical maxims, but it's best if you get the picture or allow the picture to get you. It's best if you look to the throne and see the Lamb. John writes, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, loving not their lives, their psyches, even unto death. Rachel Scott was the first student killed at Columbine High School. The name Rachel means female sheep or, or lamb, and in the Bible she's the mother of Israel. That year, in the school talent show, Rachel performed a dance uh, to this song called Wash the Lamb. I think it's really a sappy song, but, but it does tell you how to conquer the, the dragon. On the throne is a lamb standing as if it had been slain. He is the life, and the life is in the blood, and the blood forms a river of life. You don't need to take the life, for he is constantly giving you the life, his life. You see, your life is his life flowing through you. And so you surrender it and you receive it constantly. You're his body. If you try to possess the life, one part of his body, if you try to possess the life, you damn the life with, with, with your psyche. You damn, or your psyche becomes a damn. You damn the life and damn yourself. You die. When Eve took the life of the good on the tree in the garden, she died, dead in her trespasses and sins. So you see, I don't think death was a penalty for her sin. Death is her sin. And when God said, you are dust, and to dust you will return, I don't think that was simply a curse. That was a great blessing. It, it was a promise. Eve, you will lose your psyche and find it. We conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, writes John. We conquer by confessing, although I took his life, he forgave his life, and now I am his life, and he is my life. We conquer then not by exalting ourselves, but by humbling ourselves. In a note to herself, Rachel wrote this, self-esteem is irrelevant. Christ-esteem is all that matters. 
Rachel knew, or at least was starting to know, that she was not her shadow. She knew that she didn't make herself good, but that her goodness was the righteousness of Christ. She knew she didn't have to take life from others, for her Father in heaven had already given it to her, was constantly giving it to her, and, and chose to give it to all. I think she learned about her Father in heaven from her Father on earth. His name is Daryl, Daryl Scott. He gave me a call a few years ago, invited me to lunch because he wanted to encourage me and encourage us because he likes what we were preaching and he also wants to proclaim this relentless and incredible love of God for, for all. Well, John writes, they, they conquered the dragon by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, loving not their psyches even unto death, their lives even unto death. At, at one point, Eric Harris grabbed Rachel Scott by the hair. She was already shot twice in the leg. Harris held her up and he said, do you believe in God? And she said, Eric, you know I do. And then he said, well, go be with him. And he shot her. Was that the victory of the dragon over the lamb? Or was that the victory of the lamb over the dragon? I don't know how you stop an active shooter. And I think it's fine to come up with protocols and plans, but I don't know how to stop an active shooter, but I do know how we conquer the dragon. We stop trying to save our lives, and we lose them. At Rachel's funeral broadcast on CNN, her friends performed Watch the Lamb. A man watched the funeral in another state on TV, and he had this powerful prophetic dream. He then called Daryl and described the, the dream, the picture that he had seen, Rachel's eyes crying tears that watered a rose, and he begged him, what does it mean? Daryl had no idea what it meant until the police returned Rachel's backpack. He looked in her backpack, found her diary, and found this picture. From her tears grows the rose. The Bride of Christ, Song of Solomon, the Rose of Sharon. He also read pages of prayers in her diary in which she asked to be a witness, particularly to those that were bullied and picked on, those that believed uh, life is the survival of the fittest, when in fact it's the sacrifice of the fittest. Well, she asked to be a witness to them, people like Eric Harris and Dylan Claybold. And he found a statement in which she claims that she knew that she would die that, that year. And so it became clear to Daryl that this was all a part of some bizarre and wild, amazing plan. Nineteen years ago, Daryl started a program called Rachel's Challenge. Along with about 25 other presenters, they just go around into schools telling Rachel's stories and, story and then encouraging kids to see each other with different eyes, with, with the Father's eyes. Since they started, walls have come tumbling down. And people in bondage have been set free. They begin to believe maybe we're not six billion isolated souls all in competition with each other. Maybe we're six billion cells that all belong to each other in one body. That body is the body of Christ, the slaughtered lamb, son of God, in whom the Father is well pleased. And of course, Rachel is not dead. May 20th, Hitler's birthday, 1999, was the day that she began to live. Well, according to their website, over 1.5 million people are now involved each year in Rachel's Challenge. Each year they present Rachel's story to 1,200 schools and businesses. Each year, at least 150 suicides that they know of are averted. Now, now that's probably all a bad example because it's a program. It's, it's just that you can kind of measure a program and then use it as an example in a sermon. There is no way to measure the impact of one act wherein you simply love because you have been loved. That's how we conquer the dragon. You love because you've been loved. And you have been loved. For Jesus, from the bosom of the Father, 
took bread and broke it, saying, This is my body given to you. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. And he had already told them this. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen. Scripture says that the evil one has kept us in lifelong bondage through the fear of death. And I think that is the power of death. And Jesus gives us freedom from the fear of death, for the death of death is life. That's freedom to do what Rachel Scott did at Columbine. I think it's freedom to do kind of what Paul does, and not to freak you out, or Sandra does, and that is to risk your life in the gospel, to love not your life even unto death. But it's not just freedom for the last day of your physical life on earth. It's freedom for every day. Because the thing we die to is our psyche, our ego. That's the thing that keeps us in prison and bondage every day. So, so how do you fight? Well, today after this sermon... I'm, I'm used to it. I'll hear a voice, and the voice will say something like this. Peter, your sermon was way too long. And Peter, it was way too confusing. People couldn't follow that. Peter, you suck. Peter, that's what you are. You're a piece of shit. So Peter, why don't you just quit? And if you're too scared to quit, why don't you just run and hide in the shadow? Because you know where to find the shadow. And then I have to listen to the voice of my father. Now turn around, Peter, and look into my eyes and listen closely. You are not the sermon you preach. You are the sermon that I am preaching. And even when you fail, it's in those very places that I reveal my greatest glory. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And now if you'd like to talk about me, you are free to do so. <laughs> Amen. All right. So, in the name of Jesus, believe the gospel. If you'd like to pray with um, some folks there down front here, great people. They'd love to pray with you. See you, see you next week.